Um, as many of you are aware, our church has kind of, over the last year, began a, a, a activity called, a program called Activate. It's just about evaluating where you are as a church and where you need to go. And uh, one of the things that, that we as pastors, uh, through this process, have been a little concerned about that we think we need to see more of as a church to really be able to know that we're on, on mission for God as we need to be, and that is adult conversions. I mean, we are so thankful for, for baptizing lots of children here at Wide as we introduce them to the gospel and as parents teach them the gospel. But, uh, but there's just something special about the transformation that happens with adult conversions. Uh, it just means that, that we're on mission, that, 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 uh, that we as a church are out there introducing the gospel uh, to people in our community. And so I'm the kind of type that when I see something uh, that, that maybe our church isn't doing right uh, or do, isn't doing as well as, as it could be, uh, I'm going to keep my eyes open uh, for churches that I see are having that wonderful thing happen. And so about a year ago, I guess, through Chuck Flurry, uh, I met uh, a guy named Jacob Langford. Um, uh, they got to know each other. Uh, huh? Rusty. What did I say, Jake? I'm sorry. His name's Rusty. Sorry, buddy. I think I know a Jacob Langford. I think that's what threw me off. Sorry. Uh, my good friend, Rusty, <laughs> that I met a year ago that... I'm um, struggling with his name. Um, but I met him about a year ago. Uh, Chuck uh, met him uh, at seminary. They were friends at seminary. And, and Chuck said, hey, I'm going to this conference. And Mark Harmon went with us. Uh, Rusty was, uh, was speaking uh, at this conference. And so we went up there and just got to be around him. And uh, one of the things I love about him is just he has a counseling heart. It's kind of, uh, sh- sh- we share that. Uh, as, as just pastors that love to sit down one-on-one and counsel people and, and have had some training in that. And so th- that, that was great. But what really got my attention was the stories I heard about his church in Paragool, uh, in, in Paragool, Arkansas. And, and uh, I actually looked at some videos they have on their website. It's called Just Stories of Change. I, I, I watched some of them this morning. But I'll give you one example. Uh, one guy... Um, who was in prison and who was the leader of white supremacy uh, gangs in, in prison, like the head guy, uh, through interaction, after he got out, through interaction uh, with their church, became a disciple maker and is a small group leader. Okay, now this guy has a white supremacy tattoo on his head. Like, how would you like to explain that? Your friend who's coming with you to small group. Now, there's something you need to know about my small group leader. He's got a demon coming out of the back of his head. Uh, but he loves Jesus, and, and God's done amazing things in him, and you're going to get to see that. Uh, you know, just there's another story of, of uh, their, uh, their church is really has a lot of interaction with, with people, uh, going to the parks and, and meeting with people that maybe don't have a lot of money and, and mingling with people and and one guy at one point said, you know, I, I know that what you're doing here is great, but, uh, man, I just I don't like being around poor people. That same guy ended up selling his vacation home to start a food bank uh, in that town. And that's what I'm talking about, that, that, that there's just stories coming out of this church uh, where, uh, where Rusty has been serving 
and, uh, and stories that I would love for us to have a, a page full of videos on our website of stories of change, of people that were in prison or in addictions, and now they're leading small groups. They're, they're doing all these amazing things. Uh, Rusty is now uh, being, being sent out by that church to Cleveland, Kentucky, uh, to start uh, to start a church, and so that that church plant is is in its, is in its infancy, and so uh, he came he came to town uh, I think in the spring, and I said, man, I just want our people to hear from you, hear what you're doing, what your church has been doing there in in uh, in, in Paragool, and uh, I want you to talk to our small group leaders. He's going to be doing some small group tra- leader training uh, later today, uh, but I want you to hear from him this morning and just hear. Uh, from his heart about, and, and from the word, from the scriptures, uh, about how God is using them in Cleveland, has used them in Paragool, and what God could do in our church to see some of these stories. So I'm going to pray and then ask Rusty to come. Dearly Father God, I, I thank you so much for what you've been doing in Paragool uh, through Rusty's ministry, what you're going to be doing uh, and are already doing in, in that a new ministry in Cleveland, Kentucky, God. And, and God, I just pray that <clears throat> that through his heart uh, that our church may catch a fire uh, from what's going on in, in, the ch- in those two churches, that we might be a church that would see transformation in adults, that we would uh, be a people that would go out and minister to people that so desperately need it and see life change. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. I introduced you, Rusty. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and it totally doesn't bother me calling me Jacob. If you heard what my wife calls me, Jacob would be great. So that's a, it's a big advantage. And I just want you guys to know how thankful that I am to be here. Like Adam mentioned, Chuck and I have been friends for a long time, back in seminary together. And through him, we've got to know of Adam and Adam and Mark and some of the other guys. And he's told me about uh, many of you. And so I already feel like that I love this church because you don't need to take for granted that you're a part of a church that preaches and teaches and seeks to live the good news of Jesus. So White Baptist Church, do not take that for granted because there are many people today who are gathering together around something other than Jesus. Gathering around the idea that their church is just a a local social club where people get together and check off their southern religious I'm a good person checklist. And so this morning I want to talk to you from God's Word. If you'll open up to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13. And I wish that my wife and my kids could be here. But because we're doing the training this evening. And they have, all have school stuff tomorrow. That just wasn't able to happen. But I just want to go ahead and, and say thank you from them as well. And as you turn there. What we're going to see this morning is a picture of a, a lot of what Adam was talking about. About what it looks like for Jesus. Not just... To, to be a sort of mascot for our religion or sort of to be a hobby for our culture, but what it looks like for Him to actually invade our lives and see change happen among people whom maybe we've sort of written off as ones that we probably just don't need to expect much out of. And although numbers are not the definition of success, I believe, in the call to make disciples. In Paragold, we were blessed to see, which isn't uh, great numbers compared to some places, but some 30-some adults come to know Jesus. 
And what's the beautiful thing about this vision, I think, that we're going to see here, is that it's not just about them making decisions, it's about them becoming disciples. And so to see some three years later, still 30 of those people actively involved, to see those people actually now not just receiving the good news of Jesus, but now learning what it looks like to share that good news, and to not only be disciples, but be disciples who make disciples, which actually is what it means to be a disciple. So if you look with me at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, we'll hear what Jesus has to say, because ultimately that's all that matters. Right? I don't wanna, I'm going to share some of our story as we go through this morning, but I don't want the spotlight to be on us. I don't want the spotlight to be even on our experiences. If we put the spotlight on Jesus, I think we can see no matter where you're at, whether it's Eldorado, Arkansas, Paragold, Arkansas, or where we've been sent to Cleveland, Tennessee, that Jesus is good news. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, and if you were to read this parallel account in Luke's gospel, he says, this is Matthew's house. This is Levi, also known as Matthew, his house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, that is Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. Then he quotes from Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Father, we thank you today that we can stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. The one who saw us as unclean and yet did not turn from us, but stepped right into the middle of our mess. We thank you, Father, that you are a God of grace that hasn't merely tolerated us being in your family, but has seated us at the table. That you don't merely call us slaves. God, no, now you call us sons. We thank you that through Jesus today, whatever guilt and shame we've brought into this room has been declared not guilty. And that through your Son... Through the power of the Spirit, we are now washed pure and holy in your sight. And today we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would show us who we are in Jesus and you would help us to be who we are. That we would see that you have not only saved us and seated us, but you have sent us out so that we might bring this good news that we've experienced to others. And I ask God you would do that now. I pray, God, that you would awaken us to this good news that we have and that it would change our lives, our homes, and even the city of El Dorado for the fame of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Are you tired of working every day? Many of you maybe have seen a, a similar sign on a telephone pole somewhere, usually written by, you can tell, some high-tech businessman with his red Sharpie. <laughs> 
right? If you will just attend my event for $99, I can teach you how you can quit your job and no longer have to put in a 40-hour work week and make millions. Now, some of you are like maybe saying, sign me up. But for most of us, I think we have enough uh, common sense to realize that's a scam. This offer that, that if I merely just attend your event and learn these tools, that now I can just lay aside the everyday life of having to work. Now, as crazy as that seems, as foolish as that seems, what has happened in my life some four years ago is I realized as a pastor and I realized as a leader of a church culture, and I own it, is that basically that was the scam I was presenting to so many people when it came to following Jesus. I attended a, a training conference. I think Chuck told me maybe Mark has some experience with this called Training for Trainers, T for T. And the, the presenter of it was an, an international mission who had came back to the United States and said, why don't we use the same techniques we're using overseas and seeing these people come to know Jesus, seeing these communities change. What if we did it here, even in rural, small-town, southern America? And so as he was presenting this, this way of seeing people reached, of reaching the, the least, the last, and the lost among our communities, he said something that, that really rocked my world. He said, as you're making disciples, as you're calling people to follow Jesus, as you're using nothing more than the Word of God to show them what it looks like to be a disciple, he said, the last thing you want to do is bring them into the life of your church. Now, I've, I've been to seminary, right? And I've read the Bible, and I grew up, I was, I've been a part of church since I was in the womb. And so my little theological, biblical red flag is just going up, right? All the alarms are going off. That is not right. But then he explained why. He said, because what happens so often is you call people to follow Jesus. You tell them what it means to be a disciple, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And then if you don't watch out, you will bring them into an environment where they say, oh, all I've got to do is attend a Sunday service. Oh, all I've got to do is serve in this ministry that happens in this building in this scheduled slot of time. All right. At first, I thought I was going to have to reorient all of my life around following this person, but look, I don't have to do that. And so I was so torn because I knew biblically this is not the way it's supposed to be. And in reality, I was rethinking of all of these stories of people who I had seen get excited about being a disciple and then slowly over the course of time had figured out this comfortable, casual, event-focused, schedule-driven, only Sunday, and if you're really awesome, Wednesday way to be what we call a Christian. And this wrecked our lives because I realized that, that I'm not hearing this as someone who's being critical or condemning, but as someone who, really, that's just all I knew. And unintentionally had participated and had, 
had even programmed that to be an option for people. And so what we did is we, and, and people looked at us and said, well, you're crazy, or it's the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, right, that's a fine line. And we had just uh, built our custom home uh, on eight acres of land, a flowing creek through the middle of it. Had told the builders, spare no expense. I'm clueless when it comes to building, but something about whether you want your studs to be 16 inches apart or 12 inches apart. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So we're like, do them 12 inches apart, right? That's better. We're living here forever. And then all of a sudden, the God just like drops this bomb in our lives to where we can't sleep at night, to where we're crying. And then I share it with my wife, and I'm thinking, all right, she'll shut this down fast, right? And then I don't know what happened. Again, I hope it's the Holy Spirit. It's like she says, yes, I feel, I've been feeling the same way. We've got to figure out what it's like because you're looking at this like nice house and this land and, and then you're reading the Bible and you're just like, is this it? Is this what we just give our lives to? We check the list that we did the church thing, we preached some good sermons, we ran some good programs. But when it comes down to it, our lives are not centered on a daily encounter with Jesus and helping others do the same. And so we moved and we... We told her we loved our church, had no conflict. We're just like, we don't know how to lead this. We don't know how to do this. We've never did this. And so we, we moved to Paragold because we heard of this church that was doing this. And we were trained. And, and you guys don't have to follow a similar journey. But I think what we all are called to do is to realize that Jesus' intention for His followers and the intention that He has for His churches is that we would be everyday disciples. We would be everyday disciples of an everyday church. And you may be thinking, well, if my journey's not going to look like yours, and it, it won't probably, well, what could it look like? How in the world do we even do this? How in the world do I even begin to change from being an event-focused follower of Jesus to an everyday disciple of this one I call my king? And this is what I believe we see a great picture of what it looks like in Matthew Notice, everyday disciple-making, first of all, it has Jesus at the center. We can't assume that. We can't act like that's a, oh yeah, yawn statement. Notice, as Jesus, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So in this text, we're going to see Jesus saturating Matthew's everyday life. But before Matthew's everyday life, before Matthew's table is changed, notice first of all, Matthew's heart is changed. Before Matthew's home is changed, Matthew's life is changed. Jesus is good news to Matthew. We may not realize it, but what Matthew is doing here is he's not just saying, I'll attend your event. Matthew is walking away from his comfort. Matthew is walking away from life as he knew it. He is walking away from what would have been a very lucrative, comfortable lifestyle as a tax collector working for the imperial Roman government to follow this man who will eventually be killed at the hands of those same leaders. 
What happens in Matthew's heart is the same thing that's going to have to happen in our hearts and the same thing that the religious South needs is to realize Jesus is not simply true news. He's good news. Do you believe that? That He's not just true news, but good news? Because until you do, this will all sound like crazy talk. Before you do, all this will sound like, man, this guy just made my life harder. He just made me feel guilty because I'm not doing enough. And here I was thinking I was doing all this stuff, showing up at everything. I don't want to go hear some preacher, this guy telling me now I need to do more. If that's how you're hearing all this this morning, then you're not yet hearing that Jesus is not just true news. He's good news. He's not a scam. He's our king. And he calls us to follow him. Everyday discipleship starts with Jesus as good news. But it also starts with Jesus as Lord. Jesus doesn't say, Matthew, attend my event. He says, Matthew, follow me. Now there's nothing wrong with events. If you were a part of our church, you would see us gathering and having things that would be called events. But do, event, do the events serve the purpose of following Jesus in everyday life or have the events become the definition of following Jesus? That's what we have to reckon with. Before our lives become lives of everyday worship that spill into the lives of other people, it has, Jesus has to invade our hearts as good news and as Lord. I remember uh, one of the many boneheaded things I've did in the relationship with my wife since we started dating is when we first started dating, I didn't tell anybody. Right? Maybe some of you guys are dumb like me, like you're dating some girl and you don't talk to, her, to other people about her. <laughs> right? You've got to keep your options available, right? And you don't want the word getting out. And so I remember my mom just being like, so who's this girl you're always talking to on the phone? Or what did you do this last Friday night? And... I'm almost like a, still a teenager, and my mom asked me questions. Nothing. Fine. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. And so, all this time, this, this girl, my wife's name is Cassie, she's just sort of this idea, right? I go out on dates with her, I talk to her occasionally, but there's this big compartment to when I'm with my family, I'm with my friends, that I don't say a lot about her. But then this great transition happens, though, when I introduce my wife to my parents, or my future wife. And they learn her name. And now they know how I'm spending my time. They know why I have a smile on my face. They know why now my schedule gets changed. Hey, can you come over to the birthday party? No, because I'll be with Cassie. You see, there's such a big difference when a person becomes not just an idea that we put on a schedule that we do things with, but they're welcomed in to our life. That's the question I just have for you as we think about this first point of Jesus at the center. Is have, have, you, have you brought Jesus home? Has He saturated your life? Is He a, very, is he a part of who you are? Or is he just an idea? 
Just a person? Yeah. I hang out with him sometimes. It's no doubt there are some of you in here who are dating Jesus. But he's not your life. You know that doesn't work with any other relationship. Husbands, try telling your wife, you know what? I'm going to schedule you a few slots in this week and see how that works. Some of you wives would probably be like, well, that would actually be better. But, uh, or try as parents to say, you know what? This, this classic lie, I may not can spend a lot of time with you, but I'm going to spend some quality time with you. Guess what? You can't schedule quality time, right? Try that. We're going to have an awesome time tonight. <laughs> doesn't usually work out. But for many of us, that's why our faith is so weak, why our discipleship is so compartmentalized, is because we think that we can schedule a soul-satisfying, life-changing relationship with Jesus. When He's calling us to center our lives on Him. You see, our methods, our programs and events, if they don't serve the purpose of calling people to know and follow Jesus, then what we find out is we find ourselves very uncompelling to people. Very uncompelling. Compelling Christian events, guess what, are usually only compelling to other Christians. And that's why we find in our churches, when it comes to a lot of times adult growth in churches, it's merely a shuffling around of the same people in our communities. Instead of seeing new people come to love Jesus. And then we get nervous. We get competitive. We fight over them like kids fighting over the same toy. When there are so many people in our communities who are broken. Who are burnt out. Who are bored. Who are bitter. Because they don't know who Jesus really is. They have a view of Jesus. The broken people who they think in our communities. Particularly in the south. That he's just saying... You need to get your act together. Get it together. And the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus we hear, see here speaking to Matthew is the Jesus who says, you know what? It's okay to not be okay. But you don't have to stay that way. So many burnout people in our communities who when we live lives that make Jesus merely just this uh, event idea when they hear us coming to them and speaking of Jesus they're burnt out because they're like this person just wants me to do more and try harder and I, I just can't do that when the real Jesus says Christianity is not mainly about rules to be followed but a joy to be found bored people so many bored peoples particularly even younger than I am, who were told, when you grow up, you're going to be awesome. Right? And now they've grew up, right? And they're all trying to stay married, realizing, oh, I'm not awesome. I'm not just going to get a trophy at work for showing up or not showing up. Life is hard. And then we call them to follow Jesus, and all they hear in the back of their head is, what, what's going and sitting in a service going to do? Is that all there is to it? And the real Jesus comes not just to change our Sundays, but our everydays. 
And this is why we are planning our church, and this is why I think we should all view church as mainly about Jesus. It's why I'm taking so long right now to just talk about that. Because you can change your methods. Methods are not good saviors. They will let you down. If you put your hope in a method, if you put your hope in a strategy, if you put your hope in a new program, at the end of the day, that's not going to hold you when your marriages are falling apart. At the end of the day, that's not going to hold you when you have deaths of children in your family. At the end of the day, when, when everything that you thought was going to go so wonderfully is falling apart, it will only be Jesus who's enough. But when Jesus becomes enough for us, guess what? Now mission, everyday discipleship, starts to flow. And notice how it flows here. This is not just Jesus. Everyday disciple making is not just having Jesus at the center, but it flows out into our community. It's others. So verse 10, he reclines at the table with the tax collectors and sinners, and we'll get to that, but notice, and his disciples. And his disciples. Everyday disciple making has other disciples around the table. This is how Jesus did his mission. You rarely see Jesus alone. And even when you see Jesus alone, like in certain instances with the Samaritan woman in John 4, very quickly you're like, he's bringing in his guys with him. For Jesus' mission is not just this lone ranger, everybody come in and get trained to share the gospel, now everybody go out by themselves and share the gospel event or interaction. No, Jesus makes disciples through being together, through life on life, through life in community, through a life together on mission. Jesus is not simply doing evangelism here in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is building the church. He's showing them what it looks like to be a people who engage those who have been written off by the world. It's why in the book of Acts, as we see the Spirit working mightily to build the church, we don't merely see Lone Ranger Christians out here doing it. But we see these pictures of what it means to be the family of God. Loving each other. Devoting to the apostles' teaching. Breaking bread together in their homes. And the Lord added daily to those who were being saved. It's not just one place we see this. This is the pattern for disciple making in the New Testament. Sometimes we forget that the greatest, I'll use a $5 word and then I'll bring it down. I don't even know why I'm using this word. The greatest apologetic to the gospel is the church. What do I mean by apologetic? It's the greatest witness. Guess what? Everybody expects you to love each other in here. Or at least pretend like it, right? Everybody expects you and your wife or, or friends or whatever to be sitting here together and Shaking each other's hands and smiling and patting each other on the back. Right? We're in the South. Everybody knows how we do this thing. What gets people attention is when we leave here after hearing the gospel and being reoriented to it. Because we need this. But then we go out and we love each other together in front of the world and with the world. And they actually see you and your spouse get in a fight and reconcile. 
There's one thing we're good at in the South. It's being nicey-nice in front of everybody. (laughs) And then saying and doing the total opposite when nobody's around. And we actually make that a, a good value. The only problem is, is the broken, the burnout, and the bitter all around us look at that, and whether we think or not, we think they, this is exactly what they're thinking. Those people have it all together. I could never be like that. So Jesus is not for me. But if they could see us genuinely loving one another, and all the mess that we really are, if we get honest, They're going to wonder what in the world is going on. I think one time we have a family meal, weekly family meal is a part of our strategy to reach people and not just for those in, but we we welcome others. And some seasons in the life of our church, we will even not have a discussion or study time. I know that might sound like sacrilege, but just to say we just want to bring our lost friends in around the table. And one, one day as we were having this, uh, an unbelieving brother of a girl that was in our group came. And uh, he sat there, and I thought, this guy hates this. He's an unbeliever. We sh- sort of took some time for people just to share their prayer request. And because we've created this community where people can be honest, somebody's saying, hey, me and my husband here are not having a good week. Another person sharing about their struggle with this sin. And another person is being open and honest about this. And, you know, for some reason, I used to always think, well, we wouldn't ever want to do that in front of them, right? And at the end of the time, the brother, as he was getting in the vehicle, looked at his sister, and he said, that was the strangest thing I ever saw. And she was thinking he was about to make fun of it, because that's what he did. But he said this, he said, I've never seen people love each other like that before. And you know what? It wasn't like, wow, that was our strategy. (laughs) No, to me, as the leader of that group, I was sitting there the whole time thinking, what a mess. (laughs) You know, is this a failure of my leadership? (laughs) You know, how can I fix all this? And I think God's just, what God's wanting to say is, quit trying to fix everything. This is a broken world. And what this guy just saw is the fact that a bunch of jacked up people, imperfect people, are looking at a perfect Savior together. And they actually are still doing it. A similar thing happened. I could tell so so many of these stories where in other missional communities, what we call our small groups, there was a their outreach is to a, to a park in a, in a bad side of town. And they met this young man through playing basketball there. Every week they just go and play basketball at these courts, right? Most of the stuff I tell you are like, that sounds very simple. Because it is, right? Just go play basketball the same place every week and let your kids play on the playground beside there. And then pray that God will help you reach the people there. So that's it, right? You don't have to come back for the training. No, it'll be more than that. But uh, so they met this guy named Jay. Well, Jay is married, is not married to this girl named Ashlyn. It's his girlfriend. He gets his girlfriend pregnant, right? So we're all starting in our traditional culture is getting real uncomfortable, right? How are we going to handle this? Right? Jay, Ashlyn is pregnant. Well, Jay is not a very mature young man, so Ashlyn's going to move up to Michigan to find family. He doesn't even want to take responsibility for the kid. 
So instead of like having this direct sort of intervention that there would come a time for, the missional community instead threw them a baby shower. Now what also had happened is Hayes, this homosexual atheist who also had been connected with, happened to be at the mill that week where they threw the baby shower for Hayes and Ashland, which are also, I didn't mention this, an interracial couple having a baby out of wedlock. Let's throw a baby shower for them. And at the end of the talk, that night, Hayes looked at their leader and he said, you know, I still don't believe in this stuff, but I want to know what in the world just happened here and why you would do that. Nobody in that group is a great evangelist. Nobody in that group is a great Bible study leader that participated in that. It was two 40-something or 50-something-year-old classic Arkansas men, man and woman who just said, we're going to love these people together. And unbelievers watch as they do this week in and week out. Helicopter moms versus the I-could-care-less mom gathered together to love each other. Hunters and skaters. Vegetarian gluten-free eaters and the equivalent of a T-Rex. <laughs> Loving each other, doing life together in front of the world, it doesn't make sense. It's why Jesus said, guess what? They will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. Everyday discipleship means we go out together. We use our gifts together. We love one another together. And we find out how we need the gospel together. Because that is really messy. So it leads to this last thing that we see here is that everyday disciple making has not yet disciples around the table. So we see Jesus here is reclined with many tax collectors and sinners. This was an ultimate religious no-no. If you don't realize this, any segregation around tables we had in the history of our country was nothing compared to the segregation that took place around the tables in ancient Israel. The Jews were not to eat with any Gentiles, but not only that, also anyone within the Jewish-Israelite community that were declared to be unclean. The Pharisees, the people we see here in this text who object to this, they had, for the sake of holiness, even upped the ante of what it means to be clean. So Jesus here is doing what should not be done. What anybody who cared about doctrinal faithfulness, or anybody who cared about the purity of worship, Jesus is saying, I'm doing the opposite. I mean, we've got to feel the scandal that this is. These tax collectors were not just the irritating IRS that we face today, right? They're even worse than these CPAs like Chuck. Like, these guys are bad news. I'm just kidding. I had to do something towards them today. What they, here's, here's how you can imagine it. So we're, we're thinking about September 11th today. Imagine that, that radical Islam took over the United States. 
And Chuck said, I see there's profit to be made for actually working for them. So they hire Chuck to enforce the taxes on your community here in El Dorado, but they also give Chuck the power to skim off the top. So if they're like, we want 10%, Chuck can charge you 15% and keep the extra five. Can you imagine how bad these people were hated? They are the ultimate traitors. And Jesus says, I'm going to go love them. To the Israelites, these are precisely the people the king should be coming and wiping in the dirt. Judgment is all they deserved. And then you have the sinners here, and of course we would know everyone is sinners, but what this phrase is pointing to, the flagrant sinners, the known sinners, the prostitutes, those who stole those who may be killed, those who by any judgment of the commandments that they followed were clearly out of bounds publicly. And what Jesus does here changed the world as we knew it, and it can change your world too, is that Jesus said, I'm going to have a space where people can belong before they believe. You see, we're, we're really good or should be really good, particularly in our Baptist tradition of having the Lord's table. We realize that's for believers. And we talk about fencing the Lord's table. We want to make sure that Christ is honored in it. But at Jesus' mission, although it will culminate in bringing together a people around the Lord's table, it also includes Matthew's table. And a large part of Jesus' strategy is to engage people at this table so that they get to this table. To engage them first at Matthew's table before they're at the Lord's table. This is huge. The Pharisees don't understand it. Maybe some of you, even right now, it makes you squirm in your seat to think of sitting at a table and actually seeking to build relationships with those who are the modern day equivalent of the tax collectors and the sinners. The guy at work or the lady at work who you think is a jerk, who says they're maybe even says they're a Christian but, but doesn't take it seriously. The person who is publicly someone who is wrecking their lives and wrecking the lives of other people. And yet Jesus says, these are the very people I've came for. In verse 12, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Do you imagine today if all of the local doctors and hospitals decided they were going to use all of their resources to make the people who were well more healthy? What we would have on our hands would be a public outrage, wouldn't it? Your family members are getting sick. People are dying in the community. And all of this money, all of these resources are going and taking the people who are already well and saying, let's make them more healthy. And yet if I think, if we were honest, we can see this is how much of the world of the church is exactly structured. Let's do another Bible study. <laughs> We mastered James. Now let's master Mark. 
When are we going to obey James? <laughs> that actually says, <laughs> this is what's funny. <laughs> that actually says, if you have faith without works, your faith is dead. Don't merely be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. What would it look like as small groups, as churches, if we were like, let's not, let's not stop meeting together, but let's start meeting together and figure out how we can actually follow Jesus in such a way that doesn't just make us who are well more healthy, but actually helps those who are sick become well. And for those who may think this is some sort of trendy getting away from the good paths, Jesus has a word for us too. He says in verse 13, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The Pharisees touted themselves as we're the more biblical people. The Pharisees were not all bad. Sometimes we don't realize that. The Pharisees had pretty good intentions. They wanted revival to happen in Israel. And they believed that revival would happen by everybody getting super serious about being holy. And I think in the best understanding of them, this is what they wanted. And so they came up with all of these extra rules and created all this separate distance from the world so that they could protect themselves. But in so doing, they forgot the very purpose of what it meant to be holy. That God called His people to be separate for the sake of being a blessing to the nations. That God didn't want His people merely involved in meaningless, repetitious worship, but actually lives of mercy. So you could substitute this. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, everyday mission that loves people who are hurting. Not sacrifice. Not you just making sure that you can go down the checklist of all of your regular religious, even good religious activities. And you think, well, preacher, that's messy. <laughs> I've got kids that I don't want sitting at a table with somebody like that. You think, that's messy. I've tried that before. And you don't understand. These people don't want to be helped. Preacher, you don't understand. We'll just get taken advantage of. It'll be a mess. And this is where we've got to look in the mirror, isn't it? What if Jesus would have said that about us? Because ever how polished we look on the outside, we know the truth about our hearts, or if you're married, your spouse does, and they can share it with you after the service today. It's <laughs> what Jesus did, is he didn't say, hey, get it together, then you can come to the table. He said, I'm coming to your table. He said, I'm going to leave the perfect, pure, holy place of heaven with, my, with the Father and the Spirit. And I'm going to come and live in this world. I'm going to jump into the mess and I'm going to show you how willing I'm going to. I'm jumping into this barn. And then he lived his life as we read here in Matthew 9. But even more, Jesus goes to the cross and he, it's the ultimate Matthew's table. Because not only does he eat with sinners, he dies for sinners. Not only does he come to give the sick a message of hope, 
He dies so that they can, by His stripes, be healed. He hangs between two public sinners. And then He rises and births a kingdom into this world that one day will be consummated with a great feast of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, but also from every background, every social class, every sort of resume, every sort of sin that you can think of, seated at this glorious table. And what he's calling us to do now is to pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and to live it out around our tables. Practically, you have, and you may say, how could I even start? You've got 21 meals every week. What if you and one of your friends in this church just said, one meal a week, we're going to pray that God will give us a relationship we can have with an unbeliever. You might not be comfortable doing it alone, so you get with your buddy here. One a week. And we're just going to have lunch. Or in our small groups, we're going to create space to where once a month or once a quarter, we just throw a party and these are the people we want to do everything we can to get there, or we want to go throw it where they are. And you may say, well, how in the world will that not be a mess? Well, it will be a mess. How in the world will we not be compromised? So this is where we go back to points one and two. <laughs> if Jesus is at the center, and you're together with his people, then powerful things can happen around his table. Because however great anybody else's sin is, just like however great our sin is, Jesus is greater. He's more powerful. Recently, there was a story in the news, and you may have saw this, of the, one of the football players from Florida State who sat down at a table in a lunchroom with a young man who has autism. Anybody maybe saw this? It's one of these stories like you watch it and you're like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And the mom said, I'm not sure exactly what happened to make this incredibly kind man share a table with my son. But I'm happy to say it will not soon be forgotten. This is one day I didn't have to worry if my sweet boy ate lunch alone because he sat across from someone who is a hero in many eyes. That's what Jesus has done for us. He sat down at our tables. And now that's what he wants us to do with others. And when we do that, the reaction will be like this mom's. I don't know why they did it, but unlike this situation, we'll say, let me tell you. Let me tell you about a man, the son of God, Jesus, who came to me right where I was and loved me. When we do this, everyday discipleship will begin to happen. And we'll find ourselves enjoying the life of an everyday church. Father, thank you so much for your glory and your grace. Thank you that you came to us right where we were. Thank you that you called us to repentance, not after we got our act together, but long before you met us and reclined with us and showed us a different way showed us that you are the way. And we ask that you help us to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.